Well, good morning. So we're all going to die one day. I know you're thinking, so that's your opening illustration? It's, it's been a very busy week, so that's what I came up with. But it's true, we're all going to die one day unless Jesus comes back first. And one of the things that means is that someone will eulogize you. At your funeral, most likely, someone will stand up and they will tell everyone what you were like, the kind of life that you lived. Now, fortunately, most eulogies are full of lies. I mean, it, it shouldn't be a roast, right? But what if everything that was said about you at your funeral had to be true? What if they passed a law and there was this team of fact checkers that made sure that everything that was said about you at your funeral was honest and accurate? Wouldn't you be glad that you couldn't hear what would be said? I mean, if you were late all the time, they couldn't say that you were a free spirit, right? If you were known for your anger, they couldn't say that you were passionate about life, right? If you were a liar, that's what they'd have to say. They'd have to say, Jenny lied all the time. When the woman opened her mouth, you knew that the exact opposite of what she said was true. That's what they'd have to say. They couldn't say, you know, Jenny lived life by her own set of rules. They'd have to say the exact truth. So in that reality, what would be said about you? How would you be described at your funeral if what was said was completely accurate and honest? And now for kicks and giggles. Let's imagine that part of that law that they passed meant that they had to describe you with one word. So there's a single adjective that sort of sums up how you are best known and how you're best remembered. And so would you be known as complaining Connie? Maybe gracious Gary? Or humble Heather? Or maybe lazy Larry? I'm not talking about you, brother. It just, I needed an L. So. so something will be said about you, right? Something will be said about you when you die. In fact, many things will be said about you when you die. And thanks to the miracle of the internet, if they put it on there, it'll last for a long, long time. And of course, the reality is that people are saying things about you right now. You're probably saying things about me right now. And so the question that we need to ask ourselves, or the questions is, what are we giving people to say about us? And how do we want to be known? And how do we want to be remembered after we die? And I think our passage this morning will help us to avoid one of the biggest sins that destroys our reputation, and that is having a critical spirit. And so this morning we're in the final chapter, chapter 7 of Matthew, known as the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7, what we're calling the greatest teaching by the greatest teacher. And I think the Sermon on the Mount is so powerful because in it Jesus describes how we can have the abundant life that he, that he promised to those who love him and follow him. He tells us to have a life that is full of joy and freedom. It's really the kind of life that all of us want. He tells us how to have true religion, how to get along with other people, how to live humbly, to pursue what is eternally best, how to avoid temptation, and all kinds of things like that. Also, that you and I can experience the kind of life that is richly blessed of God. And just two chapters earlier, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, 
Jesus describes God's people as being salt of the earth and the light of the world. And on the Sermon on the Mount, he tells us, now what does that look like in practical terms? If that is lived out in your life, what will that look like? And the Sermon on the Mount helps us to understand that. And in our passage this morning, Jesus tells us that being salt of the world, salt and light, means that we do not judge one another in inappropriate and harsh ways. Because doing so is completely out of character with those who are followers of Jesus Christ. And it's not experiencing the abundant life that Jesus came to give. When we are judgmental, we're not being salt and light. Really, when you think about it, it's a lose, lose, lose proposition. And I'm here this morning to say, I think we can do better than that. So if there's only one thing you get out of the message this morning, the one thing that I want you to get is this. Do not be judgmental. It is satanic, it is hypocritical, and it is destructive. And I'll explain why. And it may sound like I'm overstating the case, but I believe that's exactly what God's Word teaches. A critical spirit is satanic, it's hypocritical, and it's destructive for you and for others. And we want to find out exactly how God's Word teaches us that. So please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. If you want to use the blue Bible in the seat back in front of you, you'll find it on page 812. And I think what we see in this passage really are, are four dangers of having a critical spirit. Four dangers of having a critical spirit. And the first one is this, that you are playing God. When you have a critical spirit, you are playing God. Look at verses 1 and 2. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now the command not to judge is actually a little bit more complicated than it sounds. The Greek word for judge, it can mean to discern, to judge judicially, to be judgmental, or to condemn. And of course the context always helps us to understand what the, the nuance of the word is. And here most scholars agree that what is being uh, prohibited is having a judgmental or critical or condemning attitude towards others. In other words, Jesus wasn't abolishing all law courts. He wasn't telling us to cast aside all discernment. It's having this critical spirit towards others. So what is being forbidden is actually what the Apostle Paul rebuked in the book of Romans when some Romans were condemning, uh, some Christians in Rome were condemning other Christians because of matters of conscience they disagreed on. In other words, not clear biblical teaching, but biblical principles that could actually be applied a little bit differently. And you've probably experienced that as well. Some Christians believe, well, you can't do this or you must do this. Others have a little bit of a different view. And in Rome, they, uh, they were doing that. They were criticizing uh, one another. I mean, thank the Lord that it stopped there in Rome and it didn't continue to any churches after that, amen? <clears throat> it It did. So this is what Paul says to the, uh, to the Romans, Romans chapter 14. He did not say that. Yeah, this is what he said. He said that, but later. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Right, so there's two things that verse tells us. One, Paul equates this kind of judging with despising your brother or sister, which really means that you, you hate them. The second thing he says is that God is the one who will judge. Not you, not me. No one's going to stand before us on Judgment Day. 
we're all going to stand before the Lord. And Paul is reminding them of that. All of you know, I think, that it's very popular in our culture to, to uh, say very proudly, to put on an air of humility that says, who am I to judge? Right? Who am I to judge? And it sounds so humble. It sounds so accepting and so wonderful. The problem is that so often when people say that, they refuse to judge something that God has already judged in his word. And what it really sounds like is, who is God to judge? And actually, as Christians, you and I are called to judge. We are called to exercise discernment. And that does include making discernments about people's spiritual lives. That is not prohibited in this passage at all. In fact, it's actually commanded, as we'll see. I mean, for example, you wouldn't want church elders to be chosen by height, would you? Well, we'll just take the tallest or the shortest people. We'll make them leaders in the church. 1 Timothy 3 lays out the qualities uh, that, that leaders in the church should have. And you have to discern that. You can't just ask them, right? Are you humble? You know, everyone's going to say, well, yeah, yeah, I'm a pretty good guy. Right? You have to discern whether they really are. What if, they're, what if you're interviewing uh, a liar like Jenny? Right? You have to discern on the way they live, the way they treat one another. Is this really who they are? There are several places in the Bible where the church is actually told to make judgments in order to protect themselves and the church from false teachers. There's a couple of examples here. The first one is Philippians 3.2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. The second one after that. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Right? I mean, that's actually calling us to judge in a sense, to be not judgmental, but to use our discernment to, to figure out where do these people actually stand. That's what we're biblically called to do. However, I think the biggest problem that you and I run into when we are exercising our discernment is that we could be judgmental. We can sin in this way. And in that, we are essentially playing the role of God. We are usurping God's role. And that's why I say a critical spirit is satanic, because that's exactly what Satan did. He wanted to take the place of God. So it's not something that we should do lightly. So when we have a critical spirit, so in our speech, or perhaps it's just in our heart, perhaps we're not actually saying anything to anyone, but in our hearts we have a critical spirit, we're, we're hurting someone because we're seeing something in their life that we don't like, something that we disagree with, maybe something that we're offended by. And when that happens, we typically do three things, I think. Number one, we assume that we know all of the information so that we can make a right judgment. And number two, even worse, we assume that we understand the motives of that person. We know why you did it, and we know that it was for the wrong reasons. Even though if we were honest, we would know that sometimes our own motives don't really line up. You know, you see this, I think, sometimes in, in marriage, especially in, in new marriages where you're trying to kind of figure out living together and so forth, and you might have one say to the other, I know why you squeeze the tube of toothpaste in the middle, because you hate me. You hate me. Uh, no, I'm just not that bright. That's, that's what it is. But we assume that we understand their motives. And then third is that we assume that it's our responsibility now to think less of them and more of ourselves. The reality is only God knows all of the information in a given circumstance, and only God knows somebody else's motives. 
And so when you and I judge in that way, we are taking on the role of God. It is a very, very dangerous thing to do. And not only that, but you and I actually have a very different responsibility in one another's lives. Different than just looking down on each other and feeling better about ourselves. And we're going to come back to that in a little bit. So here's the question this, this verse answers. So when we do that, when we have a critical spirit, when we play God, how does God respond to that? Well, you, you probably don't want to know. But what the passage says is God will judge you in the same way that you judge others. Right? So when you and I judge someone, we have a critical spirit against someone, we would probably think to ourselves, well, I'm judging them fairly based on what they've done. My judgment against them is fair. And I wouldn't mind if somebody judged me that way. And God then takes us at our word. It is true that we get judged that way from other people. If we're critical, people can be critical to us. But the point of the passage seems to be that God is going to use that measure of judgment that you use against someone else. And this is actually far more serious than it may, it may sound at first. Here's a couple of Bible verses that, that help us understand that. The first is James chapter 2, verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. So you have a, a standard where you don't show mercy? Well, then God's not going to show mercy to you. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Matthew 6, 15. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So what, what's happening here? It's not that every time you forget to, you, you fail to forgive someone uh, or you sin, you know, you're in trouble. You lose your salvation. Your relationship with God is over. What's actually being talked about here is that someone who has a critical spirit, someone who does not show mercy, someone who doesn't show forgiveness to others, is displaying the mark of someone who has not experienced the saving grace of God. I mean, in shorthand, you would say this person doesn't know the Lord. They're not saved. That's why they're, they have an ongoing critical spirit. That's why they don't forgive anyone. That's why they don't show mercy. I mean, when you think about that, that's a very strong word. You and I can do nothing to earn our salvation, right? The Bible is super clear about that. All that you and I can bring to the Lord is our sin and our need. We have to go trusting in Jesus that all of the penalty for our rebellion against God was put on Jesus on the cross. And our faith in him is what brings forgiveness and reconciliation to God. But the lives that you and I live that actually says an awful lot about our relationship with the Lord. How we treat one another, how we think about one another, whether we extend grace or forgiveness, whether we show uh, a critical spirit or not, it actually reveals what's in our hearts and whether we truly know the Lord or not. And I, my prayer is that the Lord would use this passage this morning in the lives of, of, any, of, of any of us who think we know the Lord but actually don't. And it could be that having a critical spirit is sort of like the light on the dashboard the Lord uses for you to say, wow, why am I like that? that? That's not characteristic of a follower of Christ, one who's been shown so much grace from God. I should be showing that to other people. 2 Peter 1.10 says this, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. And he had just gone through and explained a lot of qualities like the fruit of the Spirit. What does it look like for someone who truly knows the Lord and is walking with him? Not perfectly, obviously, but faithfully. Saying so if those qualities are true in your life, it, it helps to confirm your calling and election. So God is the ultimate judge. God is the final judge 
A judgment day is coming and people will stand before him and not us. So don't play God. Don't take on his final role of judgment. He can handle that pretty well by himself. But remember not to be judgmental because it is satanic, it is hypocritical, and it is destructive. And now the second danger of having a critical spirit is that you are guilty of hypocrisy. Having a crit critical spirit makes us hypocrites. Verses 3 through the uh, first part of verse 5 say this, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye. Isn't that great? I don't know if Jesus had a smile when he was saying this or what. I mean, it's a ridiculous kind of absurd idea, but Jesus' use of hyperbole here is actually communicating a very powerful point. A critical spirit is absurd. If you had any idea what's going on in your own heart, if you understood the level of your sin, you would realize how absurd it is to have a critical spirit. The Greek word for hypocrite was actually a word that they would use for a performer or a, um, a theater actor, someone sometimes wearing a mask. In other words, someone who is pretending to be something that they weren't. And so when you and I have a critical spirit, when we express that to someone, we are being hypocrites. Because what we are doing is we are pretending that this person is a sinner and we are not. This person's sin needs to be addressed, mine does not. That's what it means to be a hypocrite. I, I, I firmly believe that if you and I recognized our own sinfulness, that we would approach anybody, people in the church, outside the church, very differently. We would, we would not have a critical spirit. Why? Because having an accurate view of ourselves, I believe, breeds humility. The more I understand my own sinfulness, my weaknesses, my, my brokenness, my flaws, all the things that are wrong with me, the less likely I'm going to have a critical spirit. I am much more likely to be gracious to other people when I am aware of God's grace to me. But when I focus on your sins rather than my own, I have just set the stage for having a critical spirit. Now I want you to notice the first word in verse 3. I find that surprising. It says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? I would have assumed the question would be, how? How in the world can you see that speck when you have this two-by-four in your eye? How are you able to do that? But he's actually asking the question, why? Because it goes to our motives. I think Jesus is asking, why would you focus on the comparatively small sin of your brother or sister or of someone else rather than addressing the greater need, your more significant sin? Why would we, as sinners, condemn other sinners? Why would we arrogantly put ourselves ahead of such of others? I think there's a very, very revealing uh, passage in Ecclesiastes 7 I want us to look at now. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Also, do not take seriously all words which are spoken, so that you will not hear your servant cursing you. For you also have realized that you likewise have many times cursed others. If I was holding a microphone, I would drop the microphone at that point. To me, that kind of says it all. 
right? It's like, why are you complaining about people saying nasty things about you? Because you say nasty things about other people, right? I mean, we have to realize the hypocrisy. We are all sinners. We are all guilty in one way or another. And sometimes we criticize people for being guilty of the very things that we're guilty of. In fact, it's so common, there's that expression, right? It's the pot calling the kettle black. We've been doing it since the beginning of time. You know, not only is, it, is having a, a critical spirit unhelpful, it's actually sinful in and of itself. It's one sinner telling another sinner that they're a sinner in a sinful way. Now, who benefits from that, right? Who, who wins in that? And it's no excuse to judge someone critically because they've critically judged you, right? I think that's a trick that the devil uses. Someone will criticize you, and then you feel free to criticize them, whether you do it in front of their face or to somebody else. They've done it, now you have the right to do it. I think what the Bible says is at that point, we need to put on our big boy pants and do the right thing. Now, that's my translation. I think the actual passage says something about uh, gentle answer turns away wrath. But you and I kind of need to stop the madness, right? If we're followers of Jesus and someone criticizes us uh, inappropriately, then you and I need to teach them, well, this is actually how you respond to something like that. God gives us that opportunity to do it. So remember, don't be judgmental because one, it's satanic. Number two, it's hypocritical. And number three, it's destructive. So number three, you are, the third danger of having a critical spirit is this. You are unable to help someone else in sin. That's the problem. The last part of verse 5 says this. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And you know, as I've been uh, studying this passage over the last couple of weeks, this is the one that kind of struck me the most. It, it just made me realize that when I'm, when I'm critical of someone, that I, I can't help them. You know, you and I, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have a responsibility to one another, right? We have a responsibility to help each other grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Living the Christian life is not easy, is it? I mean, we, we live in a world that is in complete rebellion against God. They mock God, they mock God's people at, at basically every turn. We are surrounded by temptation. We are, if we're honest, quite easily deceived at times. And we have an enemy, according to the Bible, who wants to kill us. We are in a war. We are in a spiritual war. I mean, who can do that alone? Who doesn't have battle scars from that? Some of you grew up and you didn't have any good examples in your life. You, you came from a family that didn't honor the Lord, that mocked the Lord, that mocked you and your faith. You didn't have an example of, of what a, a godly home might look like. You're still trying to sort through it. This doesn't condone sin in any way, right? But it's almost like people in a hospital criticizing somebody else for having a worse injury or a worse illness. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. We have this responsibility. Our Heavenly Father understands how difficult it is to live on earth. Jesus walked earth. He gets it. Right? He understands what our needs are. And so our Heavenly Father provides us with all kinds of resources that lead us to victory. But one of the most powerful ways that his love and his mercy and his grace come to us are through our brothers and sisters in Christ. When we are acting the way that we should. 
In those times, we are reminded of God's love for us. We're profoundly encouraged because we know that he is, in, he is supporting us. You know, I would rather have a speck in my eye than a log, but I'd rather not have a speck at all. And if that speck represents some flaw in my life, perhaps a sin that in my past that's difficult to overcome or a blind spot, some things are difficult for us to see. Selfishness, pride, greed. I need someone. I need someone to come and help me. So how are we supposed to respond to one another? Well, Galatians 6 says this. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So we have that responsibility to one another. I think it's pretty clear. If you see a believer with a speck in his or her eye, a genuine speck, not just in your legalistic imagination, but it's really there, then you have a responsibility to go to them. But first, you need to prepare yourself spiritually so that you will go humbly, you will go lovingly, and you must go, not to get this off your chest, but to seek to restore them in a spirit of gentleness. That's how God commands you to do it. I mean, when you think about a critical spirit, the last word you think is gentleness, right? And yet that's how we're commanded to approach someone who has sin. When you and I seek to remove the speck from someone's eye and we don't follow that instruction, we're not helping them, we're actually harming them. So here's a principle that I hope that, that we'll all grasp. If God has given you insight to see the speck in someone else's eye, he has done that so that you can help them, not harm them. Right? So if you have God-given insight into a speck in someone else's eye, the reason God gave you that was so that you can help them, not hurt them. 1 Corinthians 8.1 lays out a principle I think is helpful here. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And so often the more that we know, whether it's about somebody else's sin or theological knowledge or an experience that we might have, the more our pride gets built up. You know, during the summer before my senior year of high school, I went on a two-month mission trip. Uh, went overseas. It was a great experience, very positive in many respects. But it made me very proud. I mean, I had no idea how much more godly I was than my family, who all love Jesus, uh, until I went on that mission trip. And I came back and I had to live with these non-mission trip going people. I mean, it was like being with the unwashed. And it didn't take long for my family to get very sick of me. And I've learned from that. And oftentimes when I encourage people going on short-term mission trips, I said, God is giving you insight on this trip. And it's not for you to hold over other people. You, you may be going to a country that experiences great poverty and your heart will be broken for it. When you come back, it's not to rebuke those people whose heart hasn't been broken. God gave you that experience so that you could share it with them so that their hearts could be broken. But I mean, this, 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 this tendency to use our knowledge in a prideful way, I mean, it is pervasive, right? And it's ugly. I mean, I think uh, sort of a silly example, but it's one that we can all resonate with, is somebody in your family goes on a diet and now they feel the freedom to criticize everything that you eat at the dinner table, right? And they're looking at you going, I can't believe you're going to eat that. You know, the whiter the bread, the sooner you're dead. And you're like, you know, last week before your diet, you had six rolls. Pass the butter. So what I'm saying is don't be that guy. Don't, don't be that gal, okay? Out of your life, let the love and the grace and the mercy of God ooze out 
to other people. May that be what you are known for because we absolutely need it. The fourth and final danger of a critical spirit is found in verse 6. You are unlikely to make appropriate judgments. Verse 6 says this, Do not give what is holy dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. So this verse, verse 6 actually stands on its own but it's obviously related to uh, verses 1 through 5. Interestingly enough, at least to me, when I was in seminary I wrote a 25-page paper on this verse alone. Now I got a D so we're going to move very quickly through this verse. <laughs> uh, I, I don't think I got a D but I like what Pastor Ed says. D's get degrees, right? So there's no shame in that. <laughs> now, there's several different ways for us to handle somebody else's sin sinfully, right? There's a lot of different ways we can blow this. Number one, we can have a judgmental or a critical attitude towards them, right? Bad idea. Number two, we can gossip about them. Maybe we don't go to them, but we tell other people how rotten they are. Number three, we can approach them arrogantly and harshly, right? That's a favorite. And then number four, we can decide, you know what, forget it. I'm going to throw the whole thing away. I'm not going to judge anybody. And I'm just going to kind of let things go as they are. I'm going to leave people in their sin. It's, uh, it's not something that I want to do. <clears throat> Excuse me. And this verse 6 is actually concerned about this last heir, just sort of kind of letting it all go. The basic idea here is that Jesus is conveying to us that holy things, perhaps especially the message of the kingdom, of the, the gospel itself, are not to be tossed out carelessly to people who will only mock them. Dogs and pigs in Jesus' day were not the lovable house pets that we know them to be now, but they were violent and dirty, as this verse indicates. Imagine giving food from the temple that was sacrificed to God. That means it was, it was holy, it was set aside for God. Imagine just throwing that to dogs or taking something as valuable as pearls and just tossing them in, in front of pigs. I mean, it's, it's unthinkable. Jesus wants us to understand that the things of God are eternally important and valuable beyond our understanding. And so we're not to be undiscerning in how we handle these things. There's a couple of verses actually that, that give similar examples and I want to point them out because I think they're, it'll help us to understand why this is so important. Jesus said, let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. And a second one, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. It's, it's really a, it's a very strong word. I mean, there are times when we need to discern and say, you know what, presenting the gospel here, giving someone something holy is not a good idea. They will just mock it. And I'm not going to give them an opportunity to do that. And so you might hear all this and you might think, this is too difficult. This is way more difficult than I want it to be. I mean, I'm not supposed to be judgmental, but if I see sin in someone's life, I'm supposed to go to them, and then I'm supposed to get my own self right first so I can go humbly and lovingly and then go to restore them. I have a better idea. I'm going to stay home and watch a movie. That's what I'm going to do. So here's the thing. If you think it's difficult, you're right. It's not easy. It may be one of the most difficult things that you and I have to do to approach someone who offends us or who may be in sin in some way and to do that in a very godly way. You and I cannot do it in our own strength. We cannot do it in our own wisdom. We will mess it up. You need God's help. And if you are walking in step with the Holy Spirit, then you will be able to do it and you'll be able to do it well. 
And the point is that that's exactly what God is trying to do, right? I mean, if we shy away from the difficult things, we're not going to grow into the image of God's Son. And what's, that's what God wants to do. He's molding in us further and further the image of his Son. And so if we avoid the hard things, then we're not going to progress in our spiritual lives. So what, what God is doing is not just in us, right? It clearly benefits us, but it also benefits the other, pers- the other person that we're seeking to bring back to the Lord. The question that I think we need to ask, is Moody Church a safe place for sinners who are seeking Jesus? Or if they come in here, they better act like us, maybe keep their eyes down, because once we find out what you're really like, you're not welcome here. You know, I hadn't thought about mentioning this, but I, I, uh, I, saw, I met someone uh, just a few weeks ago who used to attend Moody Church. And when someone says they used to attend Moody Church, I sort of joke and I ask why they walked away from the Lord. And uh, I just said, well, how come you're not attending Moody Church anymore? And she said, well, I, I was divorced. I go, okay, so why aren't you attending Moody Church anymore? And it was clear that she had the impression for whatever reason, even though it's not a policy at Moody Church, even though I hope by God's grace we've never said anything from up front that if you uh, are divorced, you're not welcome at Moody Church, um, she had the impression that she wasn't welcome. I mean, it broke my heart, as I imagine it breaks many of yours. And I was so thankful that my wife, Carme, was there with me who could just give her a hug. And I said, come back to Moody Church. We have divorced people all over Moody Church. I mean, we don't love divorce, right? We hate divorce. We love divorced people. I mean, I haven't been divorced, but I'm a sinner. And I'm glad you don't know all the ways that I'm a sinner. I'm glad that I'm welcome at Moody Church and you're welcome at Moody Church. But one of the ways we communicate that is by not having a critical spirit, but a loving spirit. You know, it's part of the emphasis that we're pursuing, this warmth and witness emphasis, right? Where do you want sinners to be? Outside or inside the church? I want them all in. There's good seats still available. I can see them. I want them here. And and you and I, by the way we respond to one another, will let people know you are welcome at Moody Church. It's one sinner welcoming another sinner. That's, That's our mission. And some of us, I don't know who, I don't have anything in mind. I am, I am grateful, so profoundly grateful for the love that I receive here at Moody Church. Um, I've received criticism over the years and probably every bit of it has been well-deserved. And uh, some of it has been delivered very graciously, others not. And by the grace of God, it has still been profitable. But I want to I ask you to ask the Holy Spirit just to search your heart. There are some of you here, and I know this only because it's, it's, a, it's a bigger church, and we're all sinners, and we all sin in different ways. There are some of you who are known as critical people. That, that's how you're known. You, you would be critical Kent or critical Connie, whatever it might be. And you may not see it. You may need to ask somebody that you trust and say, am I known more for my criticism of others than my kind words? Am I known more to tear people down than to build them up? Some of us need to really think and pray through that. I think, honestly, if some of us knew how we were seen, we might be shocked and embarrassed. And only the Holy Spirit can help us. I mean, that's the gospel, right? The gospel takes sinful people, critical people, negative people, liars, 
fornicators, the whole thing. The gospel takes them and says, such were you. And now you're a member of God's family. Some of you think you're standing up for the truth, and in a way you are, but you're doing far more damage to the truth by your critical spirit, by the way you approach people. Don't abandon the truth, but confront your brothers and sisters in humility and love. Honor the Lord. Build up his church. Use the insight that God has given you in a godly way because as followers of Jesus, we need one another. We desperately need each other. We need each other to take the speck out of our eyes. But as the saying goes, we need to do so in a way that the cure isn't worse than the disease. So I asked you at the beginning, what would be said about you at your funeral if it had to be completely honest? And so I'd like to give you a homework assignment. I would like you to go home and write out the honest eulogy that you are praying that God would make true in your life. Go home and think about the qualities that you want to be known for and remembered for. The way that you would want that eulogy to be written and then ask God to help that become increasingly true of your life. So to lead by example, I'll share something that I came up with. Here lies Reverend Dr. Birchie, because titles are critical <laughs> in a eulogy. Adoring husband to Carme, super awesome and amazing dad to his super awesome and amazing kids, Hannah, Jonathan, Michael, and Elena, who at the age of 110, breathed his last while leading an evangelistic Bible study in an area homeless shelter shortly after running a half marathon. <laughs> Reverend Dr. Birchie, or Dr. Birchie as his friends called him, <laughs> and, and here's where it gets serious, was known as a man who loved Jesus with all his heart and passionately loved others with the love of God. Pastor Bill was a man who radiated the joy of the Lord and was used by God to make disciples and strengthen his brothers and sisters in Christ. But you know what? At the end of the day, it doesn't matter what someone at your funeral is going to say about you as much as it matters what God is going to say about you. Right? And so we just need to pray. We need to pray that what is said about us not only brings glory to our Heavenly Father, but a grateful smile to our face, knowing that God made it true. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I think it's safe for me to confess on all of our behalfs that we, at times, are critical. The critical words may not come out of our mouths, but they're in our hearts. And because that's what's in our heart, Love and grace and mercy are crowded out. And so we ask for your forgiveness. And we ask, Father, for you to open our eyes to see just how gracious and kind and patient and loving that you have been towards us. I pray that we would come to understand in a new way how satanic and hypocritical and destructive a critical spirit truly is. And so... Father, we pray, we, we, we plead with you to help us to see these things as they are. Help us to see ourselves. If this critical spirit is evidence that we don't know you, then I pray that you would draw us to yourself, that we would submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. But may Moody Church be known as a place that is safe and welcoming to sinners who are seeking Jesus because that's all any of us are. And we want to do that, Lord, so that you are pleased 
and that your name is exalted. In Jesus' name, amen.